Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So we've done a lot of episodes on historical serial killers, always a listener favorite, and we've got one this week, too. Uh, I'm so pleased to have as my guest today Harold Schechter, now a three-time guest on my show. He's been on before to talk about his book, Fiend, about serial killer Jesse Pomeroy, who is a character in The Alienist, by the way, and Man Eater about cannibal Alfred Packer. But he's got a brand new book out about one of the most notorious serial killers in American history, arguably the most notorious female serial killer. It's called Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunness, Butcher of Men. And I was lucky enough to get an advanced review copy and just finished it. And it's a page turner for sure. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on again. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, thank you for the kind words about the book. And it was so great to meet you in person at CrimeCon last year in Indianapolis. Yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. Um, I enjoyed myself, and it was, yeah, great meeting you. So you mentioned in our last interview that you were working on this. It, it must be a great relief to be finished. Um, yeah, well, it's a book that uh, it had been on my mind for a number of years to write, Um other things intervened, so yeah, it was great to great to uh, finally get to it. And yes, you know, it's always very exciting to start a book, and then you can't wait to finish it. <laughs> so um, I'm glad it's uh, over. And, and you know, the publisher really did a beautiful job with the book. Um, so I'm I'm very very pleased about it. When did you first decide that you wanted to write a book about her? And what was the research process like? Um, you know, it was quite a while ago, actually. And I had contacted um, 
the author of a previous book, um, a professor actually named Janet Langlois, um, who teaches at Wayne State University. She had done a book really kind of about the sort of folklore that grew up around Belgunis. Um, and I had contacted her, and she had very generously uh, supplied me with some of her research material. And, and again, I, I, I don't quite recall um, what happened that made me put that project aside for a number of years. Uh, but, you know, I got involved in doing a bunch of other things. Um, and then, I don't know, a few years ago, uh, decided it was time for me to uh, turn my attention to it. So, uh, you know, before I begin a book, I, I also try to get a sense of whether there is really going to be enough material. Because, you know, when I write these books, I use primary source material. I mean, I consult other works like Janet's that have been written about it. But, you know, most of my, you know, the, the vast bulk of my research is primary source material. So I went out to LaPorte, Indiana, and uh, they have a historical society museum there. And they had a, a huge, uh, just an enormous amount of material there. And uh, anyway, uh, I spent, um, I, I can't remember, you know, four or five days out there copying things. I mean, everybody was, you know, the librarians there were very, very, very helpful. Then I also, uh, the last, well, most of the books I do, I, I hire a genealogist to help me do additional research. Uh, so there's somebody I've been using for a couple of my last few books out in Chicago named Krista Raynan, and she dug up some amazing material for me. Um, in the Chicago archives. So, yeah, I mean, between uh, trial transcripts and newspaper accounts, and uh, there were journals in the Laporte Historical Society, people who were Bell's contemporaries and, you know, writing about the case. And um, anyway, you know, I, I end up accumulating thousands of pages of, you know, of documents, uh, and then you know, what is my, it's my job to transform that kind of dry research material into what I hope will be a page-turning narrative, so. Well, you definitely accomplished it with this one. So your story starts with Belle's background, so that's where I'd like to start, too. Could you talk about her early history, both her Norwegian heritage and her time in Chicago? Um, yeah, well, you know, uh, as is often the case when you're dealing with um, subjects that go back to the early 19th century or the mid-19th century, uh, and who, of course, of course, led totally obscure lives until they became notorious, you know, there's very limited amount of information about her background. Um, but she was born and uh, grew up uh, on a, uh, a sharecropper's farm in Norway. She lived a, a very poor life, basically performed all these kind of milkmaid tasks uh, that young uh, indigent, um, well, peasant girls did. Uh, we, we don't really know a, a lot. In fact, we know very, very little about her childhood and early adolescence. Um, that, you know, would account for later psychopathology. 
you know, there are some stories that as a an adolescent, she was impregnated or a young woman, she was impregnated by the son of a wealthy landowner um, and then who then beat her up and she miscarried. Supposedly, this was her the source of her hatred of men, but it's very hard to know if that was true. That was a story that only emerged after you know, her crimes were discovered. So it has, you know, a little bit of a sense of some kind of folklore that was built up about her. Um, but uh, in, when she was 23, she emigrated to uh, the United States, Chicago. It's a little amusing to me, actually, in light of our president's recent saying that we should have more people from Norway. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but anyway. Anyway, she came to Chicago. Uh, her older sister had lived there for about 10 years. She worked as a domestic, um, taking in laundry and doing sewing and cleaning homes and so on and so forth. Um, and then Belle really, you know, was very money hungry. Again, she grew up under these very, very poor, straightened circumstances, came to America wanted to have her share of the American dream um, and uh, married a guy named uh, Mad Sorensen, uh, who is a, a, wa- uh, a watchman at one of the Chicago department stores. Um, and uh, I guess about 10 years or a little, about eight years after their marriage or less even maybe six years after their marriage, he died under very mysterious circumstances. He had a an insurance policy for, I think, $3,000 that was set to expire on a certain day. And Bell, who again at that time, by the way, I should say her, her the name she was born with was Brynhilda, Brynhilda Paul's daughter Storset. So she changed it to she changed it to Bell Peter, Bella Peterson when she emigrated to the United States and then became Bell or Bella Sorensen after she married Mad Sorensen. Anyway, he had this life insurance policy for $3,000. She had persuaded him to take out a different policy, let that one expire, take out a different policy for $6,000. I can't remember the exact sum, but there was one single day on which the two policies overlap. The old policy was going to expire, let's say, on a Tuesday, so it was still in effect on Monday. The new policy went into effect on Monday. And on that one particular day, coincidentally, her husband came home from work seemingly very healthy and then suddenly fell ill and died. And the circumstances of his death were looked into, but the doctors decided that it was a natural death. And so Bell collected on both use insurance policies, came into a fairly substantial amount of money. And she used it to purchase a farm in the town of LaPorte, Indiana. Uh, By that time, I should add, she had also acquired several children. And I say acquired because it's a little unclear whether she gave birth to them or somehow got them from an orphanage or by some other means. I mean, she always claimed that two of them were her natural children, 
one of them was a stepdaughter named Jenny, but how Belle got these kids, you know, is part of the mystery surrounding her. Right. That That's definitely an odd thing about the story. And you write at length about some of these organizations and how they were pawning off children for a pittance and how she might have gotten these children from some unsavory means. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there were a lot of stories that she was um, what used to be called a baby farmer. You know, there were these women who uh, would, uh, for a fee, uh, take in unwanted children and unwanted infants and supposedly take care of them until they found a suitable home for them. Although in certain very notorious cases, you know, these women would just murder the babies. Um, you know, one of the very odd things about Belle was she did seem to have these powerful maternal impulses uh, and did seem to, you know, was kind of desperate to have children. And again, um, in, in the case of Jenny Olson, her stepdaughter, she persuaded the the husband of a friend whose wife had died in childbirth, you know, to turn over this child to her. And, and Belle raised Jenny um, for the first 16 years of Jenny's life. And then again, Belle, when she was pretty far along in years, especially for back then, late 30s, early 40s, suddenly these other children, other babies appeared uh, that ostensibly she had given birth to, but there's a lot of question about that. Anyway, by the time she got to Laporte, she uh, had these three children and was a widow at that time. Yeah, and the house that she moved into had some pretty interesting history as well, which you cover in your book. But but can you talk about her... I can't remember if if she gets her her second husband first or she starts actively advertising for men. But does she meet her second husband? No. Can can you explain that? Yes. The second husband apparently had been a second husband had been a uh, apparently had been a boarder that she and her first husband Mads had taken in. He was another Norwegian um, guy. Uh, Again, exactly how she hooked up with him. Uh, after she got her farm is a little unclear, but not too long after she moved to Laporte, she got remarried to a very handsome fellow named Peter Gunnis. You know, at that time she became Belle Gunnis. And uh, again, not too long after their marriage, uh, really just eight months after their marriage, uh, he died under <laughs> very mysterious circumstances. I mean, the story that she told was that he had left his shoes to dry by their kitchen stove and had gone to fetch them. And when he stood up, he somehow knocked over a meat grinder that was balanced on the stove. And this meat grinder fell over and struck him on the head and killed him. Uh, I mean, this was a very, very, very suspicious story. But nevertheless, the county coroner ultimately ruled it uh, an accidental death. And Bell, again, came into a sizable insurance settlement. And uh, and it was after that, oh, and, and not long after Peter Gunnis' death, Bell, quote-unquote, gave birth to 
another child named Philip. So, and again, I put that in quotes, A, because Bell was 42 at the time or 43. Uh, uh, other neighbors who saw the infant were very struck by the fact that it didn't look to be a newborn. So again, so now Bell is a uh, widow for a second time. She has four children uh, living in the house, three very young children. Jenny, her stepdaughter, or foster daughter, who by this time is a very lovely adolescent. And it was at that time that Bell started putting matrimonial ads in various Scandinavian newspapers throughout the Midwest uh, and and really commencing in earnest her uh, career as a serial murderer because she would lure, she just, she lured a string of lonely Norwegian bachelors to her farmhouse, having instructed them through her correspondence with them to bring all their money with them. And, and and they all disappeared under very mysterious circumstances. And this was fairly common, too. This this was like an early version of <laughs> Match.com. People mm-hmm. would correspond via mail, and not uncommon for men to scour these ads, hoping to land a lonely, wealthy woman for a wife. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Belle, uh, I have to say, misrepresented herself <laughs> as a comely widow. Bell weighed by that point. I mean, she was never exactly a looker. Um, by that point, she was probably weighing in at close to 300 pounds. But nevertheless, she would write these very seductive letters. I mean, what made them seductive was not so much her sort of hinting at the sexual pleasures that would await these guys, although she kind of did that. But it was mostly old-fashioned Norwegian cooking. You know, a lot of these Norwegian men were you know, sort of homesick um, for the old country. And Bell was very, very, very skillful at telling them, you know, the kind of domestic pleasures that they would enjoy, uh, the kind of old-fashioned Norwegian food she would cook for them. And then again, you know, she had this uh, very large, um, flourishing farm, uh, which was a great attraction to them. So, yes, um, the prospect for many of them, you know, of finding a home with this uh, wealthy Norwegian widow was very, very appealing. Oh, and I wanted to, to mention, too, that, that Peter Gunnis had had a daughter that he'd brought with him to Indiana, right? And yeah. it was his yeah. brother that came and took her out of concern for her safety. Yes, Um yeah, he, he also had a, an infant who, who died very soon after their marriage. But yeah, uh, Peter Gunnis um, had a, a young daughter and, you know, the, his brother came to pay a visit um, at one point and, and decided to take the daughter with him, very luckily for that young woman, because not too long after that, Bell's foster daughter, Jenny, again, who by that time was a you know, very lovely 16-year-old, uh, announced that she was going to go off to college or seminary in California, and she disappeared. And uh, by that time, she had a boyfriend who made efforts to get in touch with her, and he, she never wrote back to him. But Bell always insisted that Jenny had gone off to college. Yeah, I found that really interesting. Jenny Olson 
really defended her mother when she, she'd been accused by some of murdering Peter Gunnis. Mm-hmm. And it, it's impossible yeah. to def- definitively say, of course, but I wonder if Jenny had somehow caught on or knew far earlier, got tired of defending her mother, yeah. maybe had some words with her as, as teenagers are, are prone to do with their parents. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Jenny must have you know, known more than Belle was comfortable having her know. Um, she, one assumes, had been somehow browbeaten by her mother to into testifying on her behalf or at least suppressing her own doubts about it. Um, but she she would have certainly been aware uh, of the fact that these guys, you know, were showing up and then disappearing mysteriously. Um, anyway, again, it's all speculative. We we don't know for sure what she might have known, but Belle was uncomfortable enough, persuaded enough that Jenny knew too much um, that she was going to take care of her. So. And over the years, she ended up hiring numerous field hands as well, especially once she'd killed Gunnis. And she needed help with her farm. Yeah, she hired, uh, retained these hired hands, some of whom also would disappear. And apparently, uh, in, in that case, uh, a number of them did enjoy her sexual favors, according to the testimony of a couple of them. You know, she would uh, board them in the house uh, in a bedroom adjacent to her own. Um, so, yeah, some of the some of her victims uh, had been had been brought to the farm as hired hands, not not just as potential husbands. So one of the men that played an, an important role in all of this, a man that answered her ad, was named Andrew Helgelian. And hopefully I pronounced his name right. I'm, I'm of Norwegian heritage. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah. But it's incredibly compelling. These letters that you found, letters that she'd written to him, and they're quite eye-opening, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, finding those letters uh, was really very important to me. But yeah, Andrew Halgelian, and thank you, because I myself, uh, not being of Norwegian heritage, was not quite sure how to pronounce it, but that sounds right. Um, you know, they're, they're very, very ch- the correspondence between Andrew and, and Bell, uh, you know, is very, very, very chilling um, because she spent really 18 months uh, luring him into this death trap. Uh, and, you know, as you said, I mean, you, you really, really get a sense of how how sinister and evil she was in, in luring this poor guy uh, and casting herself as, you know, this potential lover and caretaker who was going to make his life so happy and wait on him and provide for all his needs and the sheer, the sheer cold bloodness of it. Uh, and uh, again, the fact that she spent 18 months constructing this trap for him. I mean, the, those letters give you a, a clearer sense of just how evil she was really. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very dark. So as they're exchanging letters and she's trying to cajole him to join her in Indiana, she hires a man named Ray Lamphere. 
Right. Can you talk about Lamphere and the nature of their relationship? Um, well, you know, he was uh, a little bit of a ne'er-do-well. Um, uh, he was an alcoholic. He was uh, evidently a skilled handyman in in many ways. Not not a heck of a lot is known about him, but or well. We don't exactly know the circumstances under which he came to work for her, but as you were suggesting earlier, Bell uh, was in the habit, you know, of hiring these different handymen to help her at the farm, to provide for her sexual needs, and uh, also ultimately serve as the victims, you know, for some of her homicidal impulses. Um, but as with some previous handymen, she and Ray became lovers. Uh, he even was under the impression that he might become her husband and uh, co-owner of this farm. And then Andrew Helgelian showed up and uh, Ray was immediately consigned to sleep in the barn. Up until that point, again, he'd been living in the house and, you know, sharing a, a bed at times with Belle herself. Um, as soon as uh, Andrew showed up, he was ejected. And, and very soon after that, Andrew himself disappeared. And we later learn in an alleged confession, anyway, of what he witnessed that night. And, and I don't want to jump too far ahead of on the story yet, but let me ask you this, as it seems pertinent to where we are in the story. How was Belle dispatching her victims? Well, evidently, she would treat these guys to the long-promised um, Norwegian meal, except it, it would be spiked with some kind of poison, probably arsenic. Evidently, you know, if the poison didn't totally finish them off, she would uh, deliver a death blow to their heads, you know, after they retired to bed with some blunt object. Uh, and then she would drag uh, their bodies down to the cellar and butcher their corpses the way you might butcher a farm animal and bury them in her hog lot. The thing that makes Belle Gunness exceptional in terms of the ranks of female serial killers, of which there have been a fairly sizable number, actually, is the butchering process, I mean, most female serial killers, I mean, there have been a lot of female serial poisoners, some who might have even killed more people than Bell did, but they don't then dismember the corpses. Uh, so, you know, the subtitle of my book is The Mystery of Belgonist Butcher of Men, and it wasn't really necessary, one assumes, for Bell to have engaged you know, in that kind of butchery. So there was something about chopping up the bodies of these guys that obviously provided her with a little extra bit of pleasure in her enterprise. Yes, yeah, so so Bell, shortly after Andrew appeared, Hel Helgelian appeared, and after Bell had gotten him to transfer all his funds from the bank in his hometown to Laporte and then withdraw it all and turn it over to her, uh, she sent Ray off one evening on some kind of wild goose chase, uh, and that was the evening that she killed uh, Haldelian. But what she didn't know is that Ray 
had come back early from this errand and had apparently again witnessed her have disposing of Andrew. So we'll be back to the interview with Harold Schechter in a moment after a quick word from a sponsor. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. 
I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Back again to the interview. So she was collecting, I think it sounded like an average of one to $2,000 from each man she lured to the farm, yes. which is obviously a pretty substantial amount of money in today's currency. How many people do you estimate were murdered by her? You know, it's very, very hard to know, but I would, um, you know, when they when they finally dug up Bill, uh, Bell's private graveyard, as they were calling it, um, they, 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 after a while, they just stopped digging. Um, but it, there were at least 12 victims there, um, although not all of them were men. You know, one of them, as it turned out, was the long-missing foster daughter, Jenny. But yeah, I'd say 11, 12, somewhere along those lines. And some people have guessed as many as 25. But again, that's just speculation. Yeah, 25, 28. Yeah, yeah. So Andrew Helgelian disappears, and his brother, Asla, is very interested in knowing what happened to him. So, so Bell is dealing with Asla through the mail, trying to throw him off the scent. And mm-hmm. at the same time, she's dealing with Ray Lanfear, who in the meantime has, has become, well, I get, got the impression, pretty insanely jealous mm-hmm. and vengeful. And Bell proceeds to get into a long legal battle with him over the course of weeks. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, Ray, after... Ray felt he had, his position had been uh, usurped, and this, there was this great rift between uh, him and Bell. And she she tried to have him. He would show up apparently after she kicked him off the farm. He had left some tools there that he tried to come back and fetch. And you know she tried she brought him up on trespassing charges a number of times. Uh, at some point, she tried to have him declared insane and institutionalized. So there was this terrible feud going on between the two of them. Uh, and she ultimately started claiming to people that he had threatened her life. Uh, it, it, the exact nature of their animosity is is a little unclear, but it, it seems as though Lanthier was certainly aware of her murder of Halgelian, uh, possibly was trying to blackmail her. Uh, you know, she saw him obviously as a major threat to her well-being. So, yeah, I mean, there was this very bitter, bitter feud going on between the two of them. I'd like to shift to Monday, April 27th, 1908. Mm-hmm. You start the chapter with Bell's two little girls who show up at school and confess that their mother had beaten them 
for approaching the cellar door. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that was one of the stories that emerged uh, afterwards. Um, yeah. That uh, Bell, who tended again from most evidence to be bizarrely a loving mother, uh, had, uh, yes, had beaten them that morning because they had gone down to the cellar. And in the meantime, Bell hired a new field hand named Joe Maxson, who was staying in that now infamous upstairs room, the room she gave out to all her victims. And that next night, he wakes up from his sleep to something horrible. Can you talk about what he experienced that night? Well, I mean, before that, in terms of that particular day, Belle had gone into town. She had consulted with her lawyer. She had made up a will. She then went did a little shopping. She bought some special toys for her children. She also bought uh, a can of kerosene, which she came home in which Maxson, uh, the new handyman, as you mentioned, you know, would later testify that she had stored inside the house. They all had dinner together. Maxson had dinner together. He went up to bed, leaving Belle and her kids playing some kind of game, Little Red Riding Hood game. Uh, and in the middle of the night, Maxson wakes up, um, smells something, you know, he sort of groggily thinks that Bell is up cooking breakfast. And then he realizes the house is on fire. He tries to, he, he runs over and, and pounds on the door of Bell's room and tries to wake her up and get the kids up. But by that time, the fire is already going so strong, he has to get out of the house. Anyway, the house um, completely burns to its foundation. Yes, so that was was what happens. And again, this is the the night after Belle had, again, gone into town, made out her will, um, told her lawyer that she was afraid uh, of Ray Lamphere and that he had made threats against her and supposedly even that he had threatened to burn down the house. And then, again, that night, there's this terrible conflagration. Uh, Maxon is the only one who gets out of the house alive. And Bell's farmhouse uh, is now complete ashes uh, down to the only uh, remaining part of it is the stone cellar. And he has this memory of the last moments he saw them all together. Mm-hmm. Him going to bed early and, and leaving Belle playing with her children downstairs in this yeah. really wonderful, idyllic moment. And it's just so weird. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the weird, I mean, you know, one of the weirdest aspects of the whole case. The fact that, as we, I guess, we're about to discuss, <laughs> that she appeared, you know, to be a genuinely loving mother. Um, she always seemed to have a soft spot, you know, for children. And yet she ended up killing her kids. How long does it take the authorities to reach the farm? And and what are their first thoughts when they arrive? Well, you know, let's see. The the ashes have cooled sufficiently that they can begin excavating the ruins a little bit. They discover in the cellar of the house very, very charred remains of this woman clutching to what remains of her body. 
the bodies of these three children. The one aspect of that that is very, very peculiar is that the woman's head is missing. Um, the skulls of the children are all there, but the woman's head is missing. First, they just sort of thought, well, it must have somehow gotten incinerated. Uh, anyway, the, the initial reports describe Belle was this heroic mother who had awakened in the middle of the night to her house on fire uh, and who had tried to save her children who had died in her arms. Uh, so, you know, she was again portrayed as this uh, tragic heroic figure to begin with. In a very dramatic moment in your book, Andrew Helgelian's brother, Asla, arrives trying to track down clues to his brother's disappearance. Uh-huh. And he comes to the farm, right, as they're digging around and helps them investigate. Yes. Well, as, as I had begun to wonder what, what had happened to his brother, you know, who said he was actually going to be returning in a little while, and uh, he went out to his brother's farm or one of his farm workers out to the farm, Anyway, they discovered these letters from Bell Gunnis. So Asla knew uh, that his brother Andrew uh, had been engaged in this long-term correspondence with Bell and that, and that Andrew was planning to go out there. And uh, he had been writing to Bell Asla for a while, asking her if she knew where Andrew was. And she was coming up with all these stories and he'd gone to Chicago to visit another sibling and maybe then was going to go back to Norway. I mean, she was making up all this stuff. Um, and at, when Bell's house burned down, uh, somebody sent Asla a clipping from the local newspaper describing the fire. So he came out to investigate and he poked around the farm and didn't find anything and then suddenly went and asked uh, Maxon. Uh, if if he knew of any spots on the property that had sort of been dug up recently, and uh, you know, Maxon led him to this soft spot, as the newspapers called it, and they began to excavate it. And within a very short time, they dug up uh, the decomposed remains of a man. And even though it was in this sort of ghastly state of decomposition. Uh, Asla was able to recognize the head as, as that of his brother. And then things happened very, very fast. They started digging up all these other, looking for these other uh, places on the property um, that seemed to have been dug up. And, you know, they, they turned up, started turning up all of these dismembered remains of Bell's victims. And in the meantime, the sheriff is pretty intently focused on Ray Lamphere and right. believes that he was responsible for the fire. Right. Right. I mean, immediately the story becomes this huge nationwide sensation because it becomes clear that Bell Gunnis was operating this death farm and um, part of the mystery was, I mean, you know, a huge source of controversy, one, in fact, that to some extent remains alive even to this day, you know, is whether the the 
body of the woman that was found in the ruins was that of Belgunus, um, because if A, it lacked a head, B, it was considerably smaller um, than Belgunus. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people thought, you know, that Bell had just lured some woman to the farm and decapitated her and used her as his decoy and that she had gotten away with this crime. Uh, and again, the issue is, did Lenf, was Lanfear, did Lanfear start the fire? Did Bell start the fire? I mean, these are all unres- unresolved mysteries. But, you know, what happened immediately was Bell's farmstead became this huge, huge tourist attraction. Uh, really something like, I think, 15,000 people swarmed to the farm uh, to see these horrible remains that were dug up and had been put in a carriage house as a temporary morgue. You know, one of the things that always interests me when I do these books, and it was particularly the case with Belgunis, uh, is there's kind of a notion among a lot of people that our contemporary fascination with true crime, you know, our interest in all this ghoulish material is somehow a reflection of our contemporary debased sensibilities or something. But when you, you know, when you look at the newspaper accounts of the 15,000 people, you know, who are coming to Belgunis' farm, they say they're going to visit a carnival or a county fair and people setting up ice cream stands and selling pies and Souvenirs and postcards. I mean, I if you go to the Laporte Historical Society, they have a whole collection of these original postcards that were sold uh, at that time. You know, people going around selling postcards of Andrew Helgeline's head that had been dug up from the grave and so on and so forth. So, you know, that morbid, you know, that incredible morbid fascination with the sight of horrendous crimes you know, just this age-old phenomenon. And, you know, the Belgunis case was a very, very striking instance of that. that that's a great point. Uh, while many of us are, are, of course, enthralled by true crime stories in 2018, we typically don't converge en masse on a crime scene days after a murder is reported. Well, and also, you know, people, there's this whole, you know, in Nelson called murderabilia, a lot of controversy over people selling whatever sock puppets made by Charles Manson or something, you know, I mean, but people were fighting over these souvenirs from the Belgunis place, any little scrap of anything that they could find, they would immediately snatch up and keep as a souvenir. Again, some of them are in the Laporte Historical Society Museum buttons and, and bent forks and any, you know, little artifact that could be retrieved from the fire, people would uh, people would keep as these precious relics of this crime. So That's definitely a common theme in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when John Dillinger was gunned down outside the Biograph Theater. Mm-hmm. People were, were so desperate for souvenirs, some of them even dipped their handkerchiefs in his blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems to be a recurring theme. And one of the scenes stuck hardest in my head from your book is the one where a vendor is selling pink ice cream and cake like right next to one of the pits where the bodies were discovered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people would just be, you know, I mean, people were just, you know, whole families would come and picnic uh, 
uh, you know, on the ground, really just yards away from where the police were still trying to excavate these rotting corpses. So, and, you know, there were enterprising young boys who were going around selling little bone fragments, claiming that these were the actual skeletal chards of uh, some of the victims that had been dug up. You know, it turned out that they were pig bones or whatever, but... But again, this has always been the case. During the during the Great Terror, you know, you could go to the Place de la Concorde and, you know, buy a little souvenir guillotine. You know, after you finish watching, a bunch of people get their heads chopped off. So, <laughs> Yeah. And, and you write that at one point in this carnival, a group of these gawkers descend on this little outbuilding where all, all of the dismembered corpses are being stored. Mm-hmm just overwhelming the guy from the sheriff's department. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if it was the deputy or the sheriff himself who was trying in vain to guard it against this rush of people. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, there are there are surviving well, postcards, again, showing the lines of well-dressed men and women. It's like they're going to Pirates of the Caribbean or something. You know, these <laughs> huge, you know, huge lines of people uh, waiting outside this little carriage house, which was serving as a temporary morgue, where they brought uh, the remains of these uh, dismembered victims of Bells. You know, and you can imagine even just how rank it was inside to have all these rotting bodies there. But people would stay online, you know, just so they can get in and have a glimpse of them. So there are two theories, I mean, more than that, and you list them in your book, but that the primary ones at this point are that Bell Gunness has died in the fire and Ray Lamphere is to blame for the death of her and her children. Mm-hmm. But there are others who believe that Bell Gunness started the fire, mm-hmm. staged her own death and escaped, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And again, that's an issue that, you know, remains unresolved to this day. You know, there are people who still believe that, uh, you know, that the body of the woman that was found in the, in the ruins and that was ultimately brought back to Chicago for burial is not that a bell, uh, and that she managed to escape and live to a ripe old age. Actually, there's some, there are a couple of uh, anthropologists who a few years ago got permission to exhume Bell's body or, or, you know, whatever body is in that coffin and run DNA tests on it. Um, but the results were very inconclusive. So, Right. And I know we don't have a, a lot of time left together, but I'd really like to talk a, a bit about the trial of Ray Lamphere. Can, can you talk about his trial and what strategies the prosecution and defense used? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Lamphere was, you know, he was, he was put on trial for the murder of Bell and her children. Uh, the claim was that he had started this fire uh, out of spite. You know, the defense, you know, part of the defense strategy uh, was to prove that it was Bell who started it, and that, in fact, as we've just been discussing, was not her body in the, uh, you know, that had been that had been found in the ruins. 
Uh, you know, one thing that happened was there was a, the thought was they, they knew that Bell had recently had this dental work done by a local Laporte dentist um, uh, who had created this dental bridge with uh, several gold teeth in it. And the, and the thought was if they could, you know, if they could somehow find this bridge, it would prove that the body had been that of Bell, you know, and that, again, somehow the skull, the heat of the fire uh, had disintegrated the skull, um, but that the, you know, the enamel and the gold of the dental bridge would remain. And they hired this old, this prospector who, of course, was named Old Klondike, <laughs> um, <laughs> set up a, a big sluice, constructed a big sluice, you know, and spent a week uh, sifting through the ashes of the house. And then, like, on the last day that he was hired to work for, he found this dental bridge, uh, and it was brought into the trial as proof that, in fact, Bell had died, and therefore, you know, obviously, Lemphere was the killer. But even there, you know, there was the, the defense argued, well, you know, Bell was clever enough to have planted this dental bridge, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, after, you know, the upshot of the trial was Ray was convicted of arson but acquitted of murder, which was a very, very peculiar verdict since presumably if he had set the fire, he had also been responsible for the death of Bell and her children. But that was the upshot of the verdict. Wasn't there a witness at the trial? It might have been Joe Maxson that testified that he saw old Klondike do something suspicious with the teeth. Yeah, he said he, you know, he claimed he saw old Klondike at some point uh, pull this dental bridge out of his pocket, you know, and plant it. So, again, you know, like so much else with this case, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of ambiguity, really, to some extent, a very frustrating amount of ambiguity in my hubris. <laughs> thought, you know, that I might ultimately be able to definitively solve some of these questions. Um, and at one point, I actually thought maybe I had, uh, but they ultimately eluded me. Um, you know, we just don't know the answer to a lot of this stuff. One of the things, you know, in the book, you know, as you know, uh, back in the 1930s, there was a, a Los Angeles woman named Esther Carlson who poisoned a couple of guys. And, you know, some people were totally convinced that she was Bell Gunnis. Uh, she, before she could be brought to trial, she died of tuberculosis, I guess. Um, and uh, they even had a couple of guys from La Porte come and look at her corpse, you know, and they swore that she was Bell Gunnis. Uh, but you know, a, a, a recent researcher from Bell's hometown of Selbu, you know, he's done a lot of uh, a lot of legwork, you know, and he, he was very convinced that Esther Carlson was not Bell Gunnis. So, again, the, the mystery of whether she died in the fire or, again, staged things and, and got off, you know, whether Ray set the fire, why he set the fire, these things, uh, again, remain shrouded in ambiguity. And speaking of tuberculosis, didn't? Ray Lamphere die of tuberculosis not long after his trial? Yes, he died. Yeah, he died. Uh, you know, he was put in prison again not long after um, 
he was imprisoned, all these supposed confessions of his began to be published in newspapers. Um, but there were a lot of questions, you know, as to whether they were authentic, authentic uh, confessions or, or concoctions um, by various journalists and others. Uh, and then, yeah, he died soon after that of tuberculosis um, without having made any kind of deathbed statement. I'd like to ask you about this supposed confession Ray Lamphere made to a minister just prior to his death. Mm-hmm. Yes. What What are your feelings on the legitimacy of that confession? Well, I mean, there was a uh, a, a, a minister who bonded with Ray in prison uh, and who claimed uh, at some point that, you know, that Ray had made a full confession to him. Uh, of having been responsible, you know, not only been responsible uh, for killing Bell, but also had been a kind of accomplice of hers in, in these murders. Um, but again, the authenticity of that confession, uh, you know, was subsequently, you know, really called into question. So we, you know, we really don't know the answer to a lot of these things. The most compelling evidence that she planned the whole thing. I mean, it, it seems is, is that the, the body of the woman believed to be her mm-hmm. weighed far less than her, even after yeah. the fire and was shorter than her as well. Yeah. Well, that was a big issue in the trial. Um, different physicians were brought in, you know, and scientists to testify, you know, how much weight, you know, might be lost in a human body under different kinds of heat conditions. And some claimed, I can't remember exactly, I think, you know, maybe the torso that was found in the, you know, in the ruins weighed something like 75 pounds or something. And people during the trial were brought in to testify as to Bell's weight uh, at the time of the fire which was, as I recall, something like 280 pounds. So the question was, if you put a roast beef in the oven, you know, if you put a 10-pound roast beef in the oven and cook it overnight at 500 degrees, you know, is it going to lose this amount of weight? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so again, you know, it was the the testimony is very, very contradictory. You know, there's some scientists who claim, yeah, it was possible it could have shrunk down to 75 pounds, you know, plus the whole torso wasn't there. I mean, the whole body wasn't there. The arms were burnt off and so on and so forth. You know, and then others who said, no, it's no possible way it could have lost that much weight. You know, again, you know, part of the issue is the other part of the issue is could the skull have completely disintegrated uh, under the effects of the fire? especially since, you know, the kids' skulls were there. So, I wondered through the book about all this money that Bell had collected. Mm-hmm. Was there ever any effort amongst investigators to determine whether all of this money she had stolen had been accounted for? Yeah. I mean, we, we certainly don't know for sure how much she'd gotten, but there are rough estimates based on the confirmed victims. And after subtracting the money she'd left in her will... Can we estimate whether any of the money was missing and might have been used by her in a later life? Yeah, it was hard to actually pin that down. Um, 
And and again, you'll have to forgive me because it's been a while since I finished writing the book. But I, I mean, I don't recall the exact uh, number uh, in terms of the amount of money uh, that you know that she left in her bank vault and so on. I mean, there was a fairly substantial amount which was divided among some survivors of hers. I mean, there was even she she left some to the illegitimate son of. Uh, a, a sister who was still in Norway. And initially, she left it all to this Norwegian orphanage um, in Chicago, uh, but they decided, you know, they voted against accepting, you know, this blood money. So Bell's estate, you know, was ultimately divided among surviving relatives. I think there was even a certain amount of, you know, legal battling among her sister and, you know, some other relatives. Um, but I don't recall the exact uh, amount, but it was fairly substantial. You know, and again, I don't know that they were ever able to completely match it up against the amount of money that her victims presumably had with them when they arrived in the port, partly because, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty as to that. Is there anything from the original farm that still exists today? Um you know, there's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of land uh, and another house, you know, nothing really, uh, you know, left of the original, well, obviously nothing left of the original farmhouse to see, you know, and every now and then, yeah, and every now and then it, it'll attract a, a, a curiosity seeker, you know, like all these places do. You know, I wrote a book, as you know, about Ed Gein, you know, people still, you know, people still frequently go to Plainfield, you know, make pilgrimages out there to uh, stand at the site of Ed Gein's farmhouse. Um, yeah, but, you know, but, you know, really nothing there. Again, anything connected to Belgunis directly uh, can still be found in the Laporte Historical Society Museum, you know, which has a special Belgunis exhibition and uh, even has uh, for, again, people whose interests are inclined in this morbid direction, uh, you know, even has some of the skulls of, of the victims that you killed on display. Yeah. Oh, wow. Huh. I know you've mentioned here and in your book that you still believe the circumstances surrounding the fire and bells, supposed death, a mystery. But but do you lean towards a particular theory? What Was it a suicide? Did she survive? What is your personal belief? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I'm very torn. You know, it's a very, very peculiar thing. Um, uh, you know, to have done all this research and immersed myself in this material for so long and, you know, written this book and still come out the other end with the high degree of uncertainty um, that, you know, I still have. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, do you ever have like an argument with somebody, you know, where you are persuaded one thing and then somebody says something else and then you're totally persuaded the opposite. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. you know, I mean, I sort of feel that way. I mean, there, are, you know, sometimes when I think, yeah, that was her. She just, it's not unheard of for some psychos who spiral ever deeper uh, you know, into into this kind of murderous frenzy to commit suicide. Sometimes, I, you know, and, and sometimes I think that 
you know, she wouldn't have killed her children unless she were also going to kill herself. Um, and then other times I think, you know, like other psychopaths, you know, all she cared about was herself. Um, ultimately didn't, you know, really care about, you know, the well-being of the children. Um, they were just somehow adjuncts to her own narcissism or whatever. And, you know, and, and that she was certainly clever enough to have staged this thing and gotten away with it. So, again, one day I think one thing, one day I think the next. You know, at some point, you know, at some point in my research I discovered, and again, I don't quite remember, I think it's in my book, but, you know, I discovered that sometimes in her matrimonial ads, she would place them under a pseudonym. Uh, again, I don't remember now the, the pseudonym that she was using. Um, but, you know, I started doing some research and, you know, I found a woman who had moved to Wisconsin, you know, and it would have been around the time, sometime right after Bell's fire, had that name and got married to a guy. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe this was Bell. Um, but again, my genealogist did some research and discovered that wasn't the case. I mean, that was the closest I thought I came to solving the mystery. Um, so, yeah. I think that it was Bell Hinckley, right? Oh, yes, exactly. Bell Hinckley, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I got very excited when I found that, you know, because, again, I had discovered uh, that she had used the name Bell Hinckley um, in some of these advertisements. Um, but anyway, but that Bell Hinckley turned out not to be Bell Gunness. I mean, it's just so so damning that she bought gasoline the day before her house burns down. It seems more than a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. And so if it was, then what? Could could she have escaped or perhaps she didn't want to live? Andrew Helgelian's brother was, was closing in. Ray Lanfear might have been blackmailing her as, as a witness to Helgelian's murder. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps the pressure was just too great and she thought that this was the only way out. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that, those are the two possibilities. Um, those were, oh, you know, the two possibilities that were raised right after her murders were discovered. And as I said, I mean, you know, we're no closer to resolving that mystery today. You know, I guess possibly maybe one day, if ever, you know, I, I sort of think that these people who dug up Bell's grave might still be in possession of some of those remains. You know, I mean, I suppose it's possible, you know, that science might one day be able to resolve the mystery, but so far that hasn't happened. So, Well, this has been excellent. It really is a marvelous book, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure as always, and I hope we'll have a chance to do it at some future date. Again. Absolutely. Yep. And this, this book is available to purchase on April 1st. Uh, yes. Uh, I think it's actually kind of available now on some kind of Amazon early reads program. But uh, the official pub date is, yes, April 1st. Super. Well, again, uh, available for pre-order now. Highly recommended. I know I ended last episode asking if there was anything that you were working on. You talked about this book. So I'd like to ask you again, if you don't mind, is there anything in the works that we should know about? 
Actually, I'm working on that. Yeah, you know, every now and then I like to I like to vary these sort of book length studies of individual criminals. You know, with these other kinds of books that you know, like my A to Z Encyclopedia of Serial Killer and Psycho USA. You know, ones composed of shorter entries. I'm actually doing a book now about movies that were based on true crimes, but people don't know that they were based on true crimes. <laughs> like, for example, I mean, you know, a famous example would be Terrence Malick's Badlands, you know, which was based on the Charlie Starkweather uh, spree killings back in the 1950s. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a movie called While the City Sleeps, um, kind of a, a film war movie made by Fritz Lang, which was inspired uh, by the William Hirons, you know, the lipstick murders back in the 1940s in Chicago. So, you know, that's what I'm doing now. I'm writing a book about these movies, crime movies, um, or movies involving certain crimes that were actually inspired by real-life crimes, but people don't know that because, you know, until fairly recently, you know, now it's become standard. You know, you go to the movies and they'll say based on true events or inspired by true events. That's a pretty recent phenomenon. You know, back in the really, I would say, pre-1970s days, uh, people would make these movies and uh, be, you know, again, inspired by actual crimes, but there'd be no indication of that. So moviegoers wouldn't know that there were real crimes behind them. And anyway, that's what I'm working on now. Well, that's excellent. I, I look forward to that, too. Well, again, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Once again, my guest was Harold Schechter, author of Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Bell Gunnis. Butcher of Men, available online and at fine bookstores near you. Please, again, for all your employment needs, go to ZipRecruiter.com most and try the service for free. Taking advantage of sponsors who advertise on Most Notorious is beneficial for all and helps keep this show going, so I appreciate the patronage. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!